0: I think in the creative space, like historically in my experience, you really need to have like a vulnerable environment to be able to express yourself and feel comfortable expressing yourself. And that's where some of the most amazing ideas come from. So I think for me and from a personal perspective, it's just like creating more vulnerability.
1: This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven, sustainable product brand leaders who not only believe in better, But actively pursue it. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, and today we're speaking with Casey Nifong, founder and search strategy director of Mountain Laurel Digital, about how good content strategy is also good SEO strategy.
0: Hello there. My name is Casey Nifong. I'm the founder of Mountain Laurel Digital, a full service digital agency in Asheville, North Carolina. I also am a longtime SEO strategist.
1: Thanks for joining us, Casey. I'm excited to talk to you more about SEO. It's a topic that I know relatively little about, just enough to be dangerous or at least point clients to someone like you. <laughs> so I'm um, appreciate your time coming on and hopefully we can shed some light on that subject for others as well. But before we dive in there, I'm curious to know a little bit more about your background. It seems like you've been pretty much in digital marketing most of your career, but maybe. Had some other stops on the way there. But tell me how you got into digital marketing in the first place. What was it that drew you there?
0: Yeah. So I actually started out of college. I started working in D.C., Washington, D.C. I started working on the Hill for the American Psychological Association. And you know, as a young intern, I got put on Twitter pretty quickly um, <laughs> for the association and helping with media kits. And then after doing that internship, I actually moved to Colorado Springs and I lived and worked in the front range of Colorado. And I worked mostly in the service industry at first in restaurants. And then I met an owner of an SEO startup in Colorado Springs. Mm at one of the restaurants I was working at. Oh, nice. Yep, yep. And he was looking for an assistant. And that company grew very quickly. So I quickly became an account manager. And that's kind of where I started in SEO working for... That was back in 2012. And SEO has only grown astronomically since then. Then I moved back home. I'm originally from Durham, North Carolina. So after a few years in Colorado, i moved back to North Carolina. And Raleigh, North Carolina is a big tech hub. So there's like an agency on every other street. <laughs> so just a little bit of SEO background pretty much got me in the door at a large agency in downtown Raleigh. And I worked as an SEO specialist there for a few years. And then at another agency as an SEO strategist. So I think SEO for me, I really love it because it's a very independent learner type of channel. <laughs> I was actually homeschooled my whole life. I went to... Yeah. So it kind of like... I feel like it comes a lot with personality. Most SEOs that I meet are that way where they're just like really love... That independent competition. I am not like a competitive sports type of person, but I like rock climbing. (laughs) So I think Mm. there's like, you know, some overlap there in regards to like personality because with SEO, you know, no one really knows for sure how it works. Like it takes a lot of research and creative strategy and you kind of have to have an open mind and be okay with a not a lot of structure. <laughs> and I think that's why I'm drawn to it. It's because you kind of get to create your own path. Obviously, there's things that work and don't work. And you you know, you know have to have a lot of self-education every day because things change so often. But I think that's why I like it because it's it's constantly a new adventure. And yeah, I'm okay with breaking things apparently.
1: <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, especially because at least my understanding is... All the companies who get to decide what makes for a good search engine ranking don't publish those results because they don't want people just like hacking them, right? So, it's like
0: a constant cat and mouse
1: game where they're they're changing the rules and then people like you have to get creative and figure out what changed and how to now get results out of those changes. So, I can totally see how that's a constant challenge. Side note, rock climbing. I didn't know that about you. For a little bit, I was like bouncing back and forth between Seattle and Raleigh, North Carolina, and ended up getting a membership, I think, at like Triangle Rock Club or something Yeah, like that. I came there. Did you ever yeah. go there?
0: hmm Nice. Mm-hmm. That's, That's awesome. Funny. That's cool.
1: Well, sometime when we connect in person post-COVID, maybe we'll have to hit a rock climbing gym. That's one yeah, of the that things that completely nice. fell off of my plate during COVID is I haven't gotten to go out and do any of the like group sport activities that I used to love doing, like rock climbing or parkour or something.
0: Totally. Yeah, same. You know, I had a child a few years, like she's almost two. So, I haven't really climbed since having a baby. (laughs) So, but I need to get back in there for sure. (laughs)
1: That's actually a good segue. And I wanted to ask you about that too. Like, I've had a few friends who've jumped into the entrepreneur space around the same time or or shortly thereafter having a baby. (laughs) And like, that's just got to be another just enormous challenge on top of what's already an enormous challenge of starting a company. So, tell me a little bit more about what that's been like to launch your own agency alongside starting a family.
0: Yeah. So, I started Mountain Lowell Digital 2 years before Sadie was born. Sadie is my baby's name. And she turns 2 this month, actually. And I think, you know, for me, when I started freelancing, and then my freelancing turned into an agency, I always knew I was going to have a child and I knew I was going to have a family. And honestly, I underestimated it like everyone does. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, (laughs) but you know, I have an incredible community, my family, my husband's family, friends, you know, I think like a lot of people talk about starting a business and needing a community. It's the same with having a baby. So I think like I really invested or just naturally prioritized my community and my family life and my community and my business life. Because I think for me, what's been really important about it is having like the the hype men in my life. (laughs) Because it's hard. It's really hard for sure. It's just really messy. And you kind of just have to like accept that it's going to be really messy on the daily. But like the long-term ability to create a family and a business, it's just, it's so worth it. But yeah, you know, I probably could eat healthier. I could probably exercise more. (laughs) (laughs) There's probably a lot of things I should be doing more, but I kind of have just like grown to accept what it is. And that's helped me be a better business owner and a better parent, I think. So, but still very new at all of it. That's the other thing. <laughs> I I can only speak to my short experience so far.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, there's only so many priorities you can juggle at once. So sometimes, yeah, even though I also should probably exercise more, there's so many or I try to read as much as I can, but I should be reading more and so on. There's always all these shoulds. And it's hard to balance all those shoulds with the few things that you absolutely have to do. So, being kind of patient with yourself and forgiving that you're not getting all the things done, but focusing on the top priorities is a good strategy.
0: It's true. It makes total sense. Yeah.
1: And for me, I think one of the things that keeps me going, like I don't have to balance the the kids with running a business, but I'm often running multiple businesses at once, which is kind of like having multiple kids to some degree because they're completely dependent upon you. Yeah. But... The thing that I feel like keeps me going rather than just throwing in the towel and saying, okay, I'm just going to go get an easy job somewhere (laughs) instead of being stressed out working too much all the time, I think is my why, The like why I'm doing this and the impact that I'm trying to create through this and then all those amazing relationships that are created with collaborators and clients and so on and so forth. And I just want to keep going for them because I know we're doing great stuff together So speaking of which, what is your why with Mountain Laurel Digital?
0: Well, I'll kind of speak to it in a story. You know, I think like the joke I tell, you know, our mutual friend, Jamie, with Show Group is always that I kind of started a business to meet great people and make good friends. It's kind of turned into, you know, that purpose being around community because I think like, Businesses can't really flourish without that purpose of like giving back to the community. So I think for us, our why is really helping brands that are trying to make a better tomorrow. So thinking about future generations and how we spend our time. So like for Mountain Lull Digital, we're consistently thinking about what communities do we want to be involved with because any new business that we start working with they immediately become a part of our day-to-day lives you know <laughs> they're not just a client once they've like come into the fold with us we're spending every day with them or weeks with them you know working on projects together and collaborating and i think in the creative space like historically in my experience you really need to have like a vulnerable environment to be able to express yourself and feel comfortable expressing yourself. And that's where some of the most amazing ideas come from. So I think for me and from a personal perspective, it's just like creating more vulnerability and conversations around business and like kind of embracing the challenges and the things that we don't know. Because I think like we're kind of living in a world where there's a lot of judgment around how people are doing things or, why they're doing certain things and not doing other things. So I think like there needs to be a lot more openness and kindness and vulnerability. So for me that's my personal why, I think. And I think that's actually been a part of like what I've been getting out of being a mom and a business owner is that there is no (laughs) there is no professional, like corporate, you know, straight lace offering. For me, I can't really offer that when I have a kid, kind of popping in and out of my Zoom calls sometimes, and weird schedules is something I've had to let go of. But you know, I think like just creating those vulnerable spaces is a big part of my why, and it does actually overlap with SEO because SEO is a very like technical area, or it's seen that way. And you know, as the algorithms have changed over the years, it's become a much more creative space. Because it's so much more about context versus just you know the buttons like we'll push this switch not this switch type of strategy. Now it's so much more about like answering questions and and being there for people versus you know manipulating the algorithm.
1: Wow, that makes sense. Yeah, I love the note on vulnerability. It reminds me I used to have a sticky note on my computer for a long time that said it's not business, it's personal. <laughs> yeah, just kind of flipping that normal quote that I think a lot of business leaders used to use to sort of dehumanize their employees or their competitors and just say, hey, it's not personal.
0: (laughs) This is business. Mm -hmm.
1: And therefore, I can ruin your life. I can destroy your company. I can do whatever I need to do for me to win because it's not personal. Don't take it personally. But I feel like the latest movement in like Benefit B Corps and other things like that is that we're flipping it. We're making it less, more about people again, more about personal choices about how we are taking care of other humans or the world and therefore it's less about just business now it's it's also personal so with that said i think how do you as a leader how do you help your team foster that culture of vulnerability or how do you kind of foster that within your clients
0: yeah within our team, we've been coming up we're trying to apply it, and I say that because you know you're familiar with like this evolution of the business being a living thing. so I think like when we're talking about culture, so many times it's like about a policy book or a company rule book or you know some kind of foundational thing that everybody just lives by. I think like the longer I've been a business owner, the more I understand it to be an evolution and like being okay with change and being adaptable and those kind of things for me as a leader have meant that I have to take the role of a listener and be open to lots and lots of feedback from my team and my clients and also create those platforms for feedback as not a bad thing, (laughs) you know, like, and sometimes it's negative, sometimes it's positive positive. And also realizing that negative feedback isn't bad either. It's feedback. So that means you get to move forward. So one thing that we've been doing internally is trying to build teams. And it's kind of cheesy, but we're a plant. Obviously, Mount Laurel is a plant native to Western North Carolina. And we are a bunch of plant nerds. So we have like a... (laughs) A plant team model where we have the visionary on a project who's the hemlock. And then we have the lead who's a milkweed because, you know, they bring all the butterflies. And then we have our support, which is our ferns. And so each of our teams has like either they're a hemlock or a milkweed or a fern. So that way everyone, you know, understands to be in a team because I think in my experience... In working in teams, the worst thing you can do to a team member is put them on an island. <laughs> so a lot of us are checking it. We check in with each other a lot to figure out like, hey, who are your ferns? Like, where's your support on this? Like, So it creates this culture of like constantly... Find a friend, you know, versus like, I got to figure this out on my own or it's not going to happen kind of mentality. So that's how we kind of create that internal vulnerability for our team. And then with clients, you know, I just, I text them and check in and see how we're doing. And if they're happy with our work and just be real about it. Because I think like so many companies are afraid to create that platform, (laughs) but that seems to really help create, you know, a place for them to talk. Because a lot of times there's just miscommunication that happens. It's nobody's fault, you know? So that's kind of some little ways that we've tried to create some safe spaces for people just to talk about how things are going.
1: Nice. Beautiful. Yeah. I feel like it is a lot about safe space, making people feel comfortable to open up and share something without their the normal fear in a corporate environment, where if you say something, you're going to get fired or you're going to get pulled from a project or you're not going to get future opportunities or or whatever, but just creating a space where people can show up as themselves and right. ask questions or ask for support or or even give negative feedback and know that it's going to be kind of a constructive conversation. That's mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. Love it. So diving back into SEO, I'm assuming there's at least more than one of me out there who <laughs> doesn't fully understand all the things that go on with SEO other than, you know, just making sure you've got the write file names on images and putting in your image descriptions and page descriptions and different things like that on your website. But like beyond those basics, like what's the normal kind of like high level SEO advice you give to a lot of your mission-driven clients? And is it different from non-mission-driven clients? Because I think, you know, previous to Mount Laurel Digital, you probably worked with a range of clients, but is there a different way that purpose-driven companies need to use SEO or is it all the same?
0: Yeah, well I'll answer the first question, I guess, as far as like overall SEO. I mean, I think the biggest thing that I talk to our clients and like people that have questions about how SEO has changed is that it's more than keywords. So obviously, you know, updating your title tags and meta descriptions with key terms that you're trying to rank for is important, but it's also important to think about branding. So a lot of my role in SEO kind of transformed into a lot of branding and research because with the way SEO has changed, it's so much more about you know helping people understand how you can help them and why you want to help them versus what you do. So... From a mission perspective, I wouldn't say it's that different other than it's you have to add some complexities to it. But there's some formulaic things from a mission-driven perspective that you'll start to see, like people searching sustainability and how to think about where you can fill a gap in education around sustainability as a brand. So a lot of our clients that are consumer Driven, they have some kind of content layer to their digital strategy, which is SEO. You know, I think like a lot of times people are thinking that, oh, that's just content development, that's blogging, but that is really important for SEO now, especially for mission driven brands, because the consumer, the conscious consumer that we all know, is very, very research driven and they know what's inaccurate and what's just wrong. (laughs) So they look for credible resources. So when you're thinking about ranking for certain terms, it's great to be seen. Like if you're updating your content enough to answer questions that are being asked in search, that's great. But if they see your brand and there's something inaccurate about what you're talking about, more than likely, they're not going to purchase your product as well as influencer. So I know I'm talking social media now, but when you think about SEO, you also have to think about PR and how other sites are talking about your brand, which is all right. Because
1: if somebody searches your brand and that knows negative things pop up, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. So doing a lot of thoughtful research around your PR-related partnerships is really important. There's a tool called Link Explorer that you can actually crawl websites with, and they'll give you a link profile. So what we do for our clients when we're talking about link earning or digital PR and looking about like placement for guest posting and things like that, we evaluate those other websites as far as like what other sites they're linking to to make sure that they're a reputable, you know, news outlet. (laughs) And then also... That's why
1: I get all those emails from people asking to do (laughs) guest blog articles on our website. You got it. (laughs) I keep wondering because I'm like, we don't publish a lot and we don't have like a huge followership or anything. But we get those emails constantly. Okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I get them too. Yeah, it's a popular tactic. And there's a way to do it that's not as spammy as probably what you've experienced. It's more about getting to know the site owner. Like really, they should be reaching out to you for collaboration from a human perspective (laughs) before asking to write a guest post. But yeah. So like, for example, for a wellness brand, they're going to be looking at those big websites that people trust. Like, you know, wellness brands that women go to, to get recommendations for products. And then you're listed on that product list. That's essentially link earning.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So many things I guess I didn't know. One question that popped up is you were talking about content. So back in the day when I did read a little bit about SEO, I think it was when we were planning our last version of our website back in 2014 or something like that. I seem to remember reading that Google, at least liked to see somewhere around like 2000 words per month, or I don't know, it was like some sort of number of words that you had to publish through like a blog or some other content per month for it to be seem like you've got like a lot of fresh content for them to come and crawl regularly. With that said, is that still a thing where there's quantity of content that people should be aiming for when they're publishing? Or is it more about quality?
0: Yeah. So, you know, there's large reports that are pushed out at the beginning of every year around algorithms. And the one that I read, so Google pushes out guidelines every year, and they pushed out three last year. And at the end of this past year, they actually wrote about long-form versus short-form in their guidelines. And it's still saying that long-form is really important, But it's saying that it still needs to be quality. So, when we're working with a client and we're saying optimizing content, we're not talking about word count, we're talking about context. So, when we're working on, like, so we work with a solar company and solar, especially like any energy focused brands, there's a lot of complexities around that industry and like speaking to it. So for like a long form blog, we really want to do research around competing content and seeing how we can fill the gaps in that competing content. So when Google is talking about word count, it's really just saying like, can you really answer this question accurately with 500 words? That's what it's saying. It's not saying like you need to hit 2000 words or we're not going to rank you. <laughs> you know, It's saying like, can you actually answer this question and be a resource with less than a thousand words? That's what it's kind of trying to get us to do is think about like, is this resource actually something that is adding to the internet? <laughs> <laughs> you know, is this actually going to help people? Understand solar better and then be able to actually create a lifestyle where they can invest in solar. Or is it, you know, just another blog about the same thing in different words, but it's 2000 words, (laughs) you know, like that's what I guess. When you're asking about quality versus quantity, it's kind of hard for me to say yes or no, because they're both important. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, That makes sense. Yeah. Well,
1: actually you brought up another question. So I know that some types of sites Like, for example, one of our team members at Modern Species is a uh, digital nomad. And one of the things that he learns through all of his other digital nomad groups is that there are certain blog topics for, and he writes for newbie travelers, there are certain pieces of content that are just kind of like must-haves for all these different travel blogs where it's just low-hanging fruit, like just get it done, write it, and it'll generate a bunch of traffic and maybe even some affiliation, um, some affiliate link kind of clicks. He just hasn't gotten around to doing it, but he keeps telling himself, like, I know which content I need to publish. And often he said that it's not necessarily about creating something brand new that nobody's ever seen, but it's the content that already is out there being searched and other people are writing at it. You can just kind of write your own version on it and put your spin on it. So in terms of like new content, like you were saying, finding that gap, that thing that hasn't been answered yet versus maybe if you're an organic food company and you could just answer your version of why organic when, you know, there's obviously a million why organic articles out there, but is there value in both in like, you know, putting your voice on a topic that's already out there a lot, or is it more about finding that unique gap of unanswered questions?
0: Yeah. So I guess there's two layers to that. So one thing I'll say is we do that for clients where we'll actually do the research around topics and do topic ideation. We usually do it like 30 days prior to writing it because we try to do it near that time because there is a lot of seasonality to a lot of... Brands too. So, a lot of research has to be done close to when you're about to write it. But when we do topic ideation, like what your friend is talking about, he's right. There is a lot of low hanging fruit when it comes to, you know, writing something that other people are writing about that's trending, but you kind of have to do it in a way that is laid out where Google can crawl it around that particular trending topic. Because what you're talking about is a trending topic. And it also has to be posted within that same trending time. So like for instance, we work with a winery. And we are focusing a lot... Actually, most of our alcoholic... Beverage clients are taking this strategy because it seems to be working really well from an SEO perspective, where we're curating cocktails, branded cocktails, essentially. So, like we're doing research on like highly searched seasonal-specific cocktails um, that have wine in them or whatever liquor we're trying to promote. And then people are searching for that recipe right now. Mm-hmm. And so we're putting our swing on it like your friend was talking about and also integrating the brand that we're trying to promote within that cocktail. That is SEO for sure. But what's important is placement, right? So making sure the H1, the header one has, you know, that question, that trending question or a uh, trending keyword sequence is in that header because that's the second thing that's crawled outside of the metadata. So, making sure that's optimized for that trending piece, and then having in the content, you know, looking at the trending blogs and utilizing what's working for them in a way that's unique. So, when I say, when I guess, making that unique, it's not just like using your semantics; it's actually taking semantics that are already working in the search engines and then branding them. I guess is the best way to say.
1: So timing is important too. That's interesting. And then you touched on the H1 in terms of making sure you've got the right combination of keywords in there. And that pulled up a question for me where I've seen headlines written where you're literally writing kind of the question you're expecting people to put in the Google search bar. So like, how do I find the best produce? Or, you know, is local more important than organic or something like that? Do you recommend people create the headline based on the search term or more on the answer to the search term? Or is it just about making sure you have the keywords like local and organic in that headline?
0: Yeah, well, I think it comes back to the search results. So my answer would have to be depends in that scenario. But like depending on the search results that are coming up for where the placement that you're looking for, seeing what's working. Because sometimes what I'll see is in the search results, Google is ranking blogs or content that have the question either in the title tag itself or in the H1 or it's in the copy. And then I've seen others where you know they're ranking, but it's all in the image alt tags or it's in the URL. So it seems to be to me, in my experience, it's very search results specific. So I think looking at the place that you're trying to rank and looking at your competition in that place is where you have to make your decisions because that's kind of where I've seen, that's where I try to make the the call on which one is priority in that instance.
1: That's fascinating, yeah. I mean, I assume most people know to look up (laughs) the term they're trying to rank for and see what else is ranking there. But I think a lot of us, you know, we just get more caught up in like writing whatever content we think makes sense and then hoping that we squeeze a couple of keywords in there and then we'll show up. But without doing all that due diligence of actually doing your research on what other people are saying and what's working, what's actually already being pulled up in search and and finding the right formula for that post and then posting it at the right time while something's trending. Like There's a lot of complexity there that you have to juggle. So it makes total sense why brands or organizations would hire some experts to help them With that content strategy, because like, as you've mentioned multiple times, it's pretty complex and always changing.
0: Yeah, for sure. Another thing that I've seen do really well is refurbishing content. You'll see that a lot in the industry where a blog has done really, really well. And so taking that blog and refurbishing it, like updating it is a great way to, you know, So take a
1: past piece of content you've already written and do a fresh take on it. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's an
1: example of that that you've seen that worked well?
0: Let's see. I'm trying to think of a client that we've done that with. Yeah, we work with an agency that works with nonprofits and they had a blog about remote meetings that they had written before COVID. So it's all changed now. (laughs) Yeah. And so that was one that, you know, got refreshed.
1: Okay. In that strategy, are they digging through their analytics to see, you know, what some of their most popular posts are and then that's the topic that they'll refurbish.
0: You got it. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh smart. See I need to get better about that we, we for a long time the modern species blog was quite frequently we were posting all sorts of stuff on sustainable design or mission driven business or or whatever else we kind of fell off of it for a little while after my former partner left the business to go back to go to grad school. She was kind of the driver behind a lot of the content because she was a writer, whereas the rest of us were designers and we would take 10 times too long to write anything <laughs> because we're overthinking it and then we'd like spend way too much time on the graphic. So <laughs> we just kind of dialed back on the writing for a little while so it's not as updated as we'd like. But there's tons of content buried <laughs> in that post or buried in the in our blog. So it probably makes sense to go back and look at some of the more popular content and do a retake on it, especially like you said, pre-COVID stuff. I remember one of our popular posts was on how to create a sustainable event, like the implications that go into events in terms of waste or energy use or whatever else. So like pulling something like that back up in COVID times where events are whole different things. Now they're all online. And how do you you still advocate for sustainability in that regard? Interesting. Okay. So, speaking of content, I was poking around on your website and saw that Mountain Laurel Digital's team did a Plastic Free July Challenge. So, tell us about why that challenge and kind of like how it went and what you learned from it.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, our community in Asheville is very environmental friendly. Like everyone from a community perspective is trying very hard to You know, decrease waste. And we really wanted to get involved with Asheville Greenworks, which um, is a nonprofit here focused on environmental sustainability. And I also have a friend that owns a store called Wear. And Wear is a beautiful store located in downtown that is all eco-friendly products, mostly home goods, which is really awesome. So we really wanted to do a collaboration with both of them. And so this was kind of our idea of doing that. Plus, We wanted to decrease our plastic. That was something just us as individuals had talked about. (laughs) I would say my teammates, Catherine and Carolina at the time, they are much more domestic than I am. (laughs) They're both like really amazing chefs and like have this like creative side of them that I kind of struggle with. (laughs) But I'll be (laughs) honest, they did way better than me. Also, like it's very hard to, you know, make like Carolina made her own body scrub out of coffee (laughs) grounds. <laughs> oh, wow. And I was like, dang, I cannot compete with you guys. <laughs> I was like, I'm using a paper bag at the grocery store, Amy. <laughs> well, I mean, from that regard, I learned a lot because Carolina and Catherine, my teammates, they are much more creative than I am. So I learned a lot of new ways from them and then I learned a lot about from products because we interviewed where's owner. Gilly on some products with some of the things that we struggled with. I think the biggest takeaway was packaging, which you and I have talked a little bit about, but on like a day-to-day like takeout perspective, (laughs) we really struggled with that because that was kind of near the, I guess like everyone was doing a lot of takeout. I feel like that's decreased a little bit, but I feel like that was a big area that we struggled to find like takeout boxes that were plastic free. And plastic utensils and those kind of things. But it was a good adventure. It was much more challenging than I expected, though, for sure. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, I bet. I actually met someone one time, and this wasn't attached to a specific challenge, I don't think. But they were carrying every piece of plastic they touched with them for a year. So, <laughs> so as you can imagine, they tried oh. not to touch any plastic, but it was a challenge for themselves to literally like just be conscious of all the plastic that just gets handed to you or is forced upon you in the world whether that's a straw that someone brings you at a restaurant or like you said takeaway package or anything else and the physical act of then having to carry that for a year really brings (laughs) it to the top of your mind and you yeah and the way I found out about it is we were forget the exact scenario I think we were like in a. Park, like toasting someone's birthday, or I don't know, something like that. And someone went to hand him like a plastic cup to participate in the like, toast. And he's like, Nope, I'm not touching that. Like, <laughs> I'm not carrying that thing around for a year just for this toast. I'm sorry. And I think he probably had some sort of reusable cup that he pulled out of his. It's <laughs> like, this will work. Awesome. So it's, yeah, it's extreme. That it it also reminds me that one time I was staying with a friend at his house and he was. The total like non-sustainable like prototype. He's exactly the characteristic or the persona you would write up for somebody who just doesn't really think about sustainability, and he goes through tons of like sports drinks and other things like Gatorade and you know functional waters and whatever because he's a super athletic person. And at one point we were just like, man, you go through a ton of these. Like, why don't you recycle in your house? And he's like, well. Pff- recycle. I barely have any trash in here. Like whatever, what's the point of recycling? And we were staying with him for a week, I think. So, we said, okay, for the week that we're here, how about we put trash in this bin and we'll put recycling over here in this bin or, you know, in this bag and we'll just see what happens over the course of the week. He's like, okay, sure, whatever. And over the course of that week, there was almost nothing in the trash can and that we had to like grab multiple other bins or bags to keep all the recycling (laughs) (laughs) because there were just so many like single-use plastic things that he was going through. And after that moment, he was like, okay, (laughs) I guess I should probably recycle because he had never kept it all in his space for that long and he never saw the physical quantity of how much uh, waste there was. But once he saw it, he realized that he does make actually pretty big (laughs) impact or footprint just through his like beverage consumption. And then after that, he even told me that he advocated for some recycling at his like in-law's house and other things too. So I feel like these challenges or, or things where we're used to trash being out of sight, out of mind, but just by being witness to how much trash we create on a daily basis, I think it's just a huge mind shift slash game changer.
0: Yeah, that's so true. Wow, that's a cool story.
1: Was there anything in that challenge? Were you doing that mostly all personal life stuff? Or was there like work-related challenges too, like uh, office space?
0: Well, yeah, we do have an office, which I'm in right now. And I would say it was more, you know, we're not in the office that much because of COVID. So it wasn't super applicable. But we do have hand towels now. We used to have paper towels. And I think like... That was a shift, but we don't really use a lot of stuff in the office. It's really the takeout boxes. When I look at like our recycling, it's all trying to get takeout boxes or our trash. It's all takeout boxes from like lunch around here or yeah. I feel like that's the biggest area that I saw. The other one that from a business perspective that I'm trying to lean in towards, but I'm trying I think we all struggle with is Amazon Prime you know, and like the quickness, easiness of that for business. I've been trying to find other resources as well as like, I'd love to get us t-shirts and (laughs) I've been looking for sustainable clothing, stuff like that. I think it's just for me, it's ingrained now for like future purchases is probably the best response from a business perspective.
1: Yeah. It's it's definitely tough because there's so many things that go into every purchase and it's hard to keep track of all of them. And then, like you said, sometimes convenience or, price or the turnaround time or whatever ends up winning out over other things. I think for the yeah. food takeaway packaging though, and the best solution I've seen is in cities like Seattle or San Francisco where they have a little bit more of structured mandate around restaurants and actually encouraging them or maybe even making a law or giving them resources or whatever to shift to all compostable or, you know, recyclable or whatever else kind of packaging because as a consumer like what are you going to do like order some pho for lunch and bring in your own bowl each time like which you know it's possible but sometimes it's not possible (laughs) like sometimes if you're ordering and you're just picking it up and you got to drive somewhere like you can't bring your bowl but I, I have had some success with that personally like where we know we're going out to grab some pasta or something and we could just bring a Tupperware container instead of say, hey, instead of putting that <laughs> in your plastic yeah. thing that I'm just going to throw away when I get home, can you just put it in here? And that can work. But like I said, it doesn't always work. And I think it's it's, that. that comes down to cities, I think, to put some structure in more compostable infrastructure and then encourage or demand that all businesses switch. But it's tough, even in Seattle, where it is a lot that all restaurants have to compost. You still will like go to a restaurant and like get some plastic container <laughs> with the plastic bag and whatever, and you don't know how they're slipping through the cracks and not getting in trouble for it, but they are you know they're still yeah. they're still doing it somehow, so that's a tough one. That's a fun challenge. We haven't done a ton of challenges, at modern species, but that kind of inspires me to do some sort of
0: yeah challenge. it was fun more just like learning of each person's like path and like where they're at in that awareness you know, around it all together.
1: Yeah, in fact, that's one of the things I'm thinking about for the Evolve community as we get that off the ground as maybe we could align around some challenges a few times a year that the whole community.
0: That would be fun. Yeah, the internet, you know, makes it possible to share in those journeys. It's a good thing. Yeah,
1: Yeah. it's always nice to have people along for the ride with you as well, I think.
0: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: So tell us, what does the future hold for you and Mountain Laurel Digital? Anything kind of big and exciting coming up that you're working on or goals that you're working towards or like as COVID becomes less of a thing, anything you're excited to get back to?
0: You know, I guess from a big picture perspective, you know, I think we'll be adding more teammates to try and create a more sustainable balance. I think like right now, our team is a little bit too busy, I would say. So I think like we're trying to create a little bit more balance in our working environment. So we'll probably bring on some new people this year, which will be exciting. And then as far as post-COVID, I'm just, or whenever post-COVID is, (laughs) you know, I know more and more people are getting vaccinated, which is exciting. I think we're really looking forward towards just like being together (laughs) together. You know, we've been playing it really, really safe and trying to, you know, since we can work remotely, we're talking about today, actually, there's a new business in Asheville called Parkway Picnics, and they host picnics on the parkway and you can like play it. So I was thinking we could do that with our team this summer. (laughs) just to like get us together outside. That's what I miss the most. It's like our team grew the most this past year and we've spent little time together. So I think like just spending time together is what I'm most excited about.
1: Yeah. I definitely resonate with that. Pre-COVID, I was traveling a lot to go to trade shows or meet up with clients or collaborators or whatever. And then all that just disappeared. So I've been living off of zoom or conversations like this is part of the <laughs> why this podcast started is so I can keep in touch with all the people, but it'll be nice to be in the same space and go out and share some meals or do other things like that together as
0: yeah, things get yes. a little bit
1: more back to normal. If normal ever is a thing again.
0: Yeah, exactly. I know. I think we're all kind of cautious because we have to be about like, not just like the health crisis, which is awful, but also just cautious around like what's appropriate (laughs) from a social perspective and because everyone's comfort levels are different it's such an individual experience so you kind of have to be aware of that in every interaction
1: well indeed well i'm looking forward to when there's a quote-unquote post-covid and we can get the whole kindship group team together for those listening it was mentioned previously but Mountain Laurel Digital and Modern Species are part of a collaborative agency group called Kindship Group that just launched. So I'm excited for when we have (laughs) a full team meeting in person somewhere and we can all get together and share some meals and swap some stories and just have a good time.
0: It sounds like a dream. I'm excited. It's hard to believe that could be possible, but I know it will be someday.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Someday, yeah. Well, thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to share some SEO wisdom and tell us a little bit more about your story. Appreciate you coming on.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: Thank you. Keep evolving. Do. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Casey and her company, go to Mountain mountainlaureldigital.com. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you liked this episode, hit that like button and share it with your colleagues. And of course, send us feedback and ideas for who we should talk to next at evolve@modernspecies.com. And learn about our new online community at evolvecpg.com. See you next week.